Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Um, Today I actually just recorded an almost two-hour podcast on my phone only to have the app delete it. Um, So I'm a little bit salty about that. Um, Lesson learned because the last time I tried to record one on my phone it did the same thing. So lesson learned. Only record these bad boys on my computer. Um, Anyways, so needless to say, this podcast is probably not going to be as long as it was the first recording. Um, But with that said, like now I'm kind of annoyed and I just want to get it up because I was literally done it when it deleted itself. So um, yeah, anyways, we'll just jump right into it then. So I wanted to do a podcast talking about like horse ownership, how to be a good horse owner or how to just be a good horse handler if you don't own your own horse and also just being a little bit easier on ourselves as owners Um, and like what advocacy and good welfare can look like uh, for people who don't typically have as much control over their horses. And what I mean by this is that a lot of horse people do board their horses out, or even if they do self-board, they're either um, boarding, like paying a fee to board at a public facility and do self-board, or perhaps renting land. So either way, like they don't have full control over the facility because it's not their property. So there is a huge lack of control in horse care for horse people, especially if you're on full board, or especially if you're a lesson student riding lesson horses, or especially if you lease. Um, And this lack of control renders people unable to necessarily do things exactly the way that they may want to do, even if they know that there's a better way, a kinder way, um, a way to achieve better welfare, a way to provide for their horse more. They may be limited in what they can do based off of the situation that they're in. Um, And this is something that I have felt because it, it is hard to not have full control. Like, for example, like, I rent, so the field that my horses are in, like I rent the field, the rest of the facility is run as like a boarding facility and I just do self-board for my horses and I just have the access to the one field that they're in. And then I do try to rent grazing pasture over the summer. Um, to turn them out in. But again, like none of the property itself is mine. So in terms of like actually bettering it and doing things the way that I want to do, I'm limited because for example, in theory, I could want to make a paddock paradise system. However, doing that on a property that is not mine, even if I get the permission to do so, the thousands and thousands of dollars on footing alone would be money that is essentially just being lit on fire and left here when I do leave, which I would like to do eventually because I would really like to have my own farm eventually. So it's difficult because I'm limited in like how much I would put into a property that's not mine. Um, another good example is that I was looking at other facilities to rent for the horses and I found one that in theory looked really good because it was 14 acres, which is obviously a lot of land and it would give you a lot more freedom to rotate horses on and off pasture. But the problem with that facility is the fact that the fencing and footing of the fields were so not taken care of that it would be tens of thousands of dollars in fencing and footing to actually make them usable. Um, Um, So I would be paying for damage that was not caused by me and I would be putting in thousands and thousands of dollars worth of work um, and material into fixing a property that is not mine. Um, And when you're renting too, like if you sign a year lease, okay, you're guaranteed to be there for a year. But if you put $30,000 into fixing a property and then at the end of that lease, your landlord decides they don't want to continue leasing it, um, that sucks. I know people who that has happened to where they've put a lot of money into fixing a property only to have the lease and much sooner than what they were led to believe it would. Um, 
So that's like another good example of how you can be limited in care. And then with full board, it can be limited in like the types of hay that they offer, the types of grain, uh, the turnout situations, because a lot of full board barns don't do group turnout or they'll have individual paddock turnout or they won't do overnight turnout and horses will have to come in at night because those are the rules of the barn. So it doesn't really matter if the owner believes that their horse should have friends or the owner wants their horse to stay out full time. If they don't own the property and they are not allowed to make those calls, they're at the mercy of the situation that they're in. So I thought that this would be an important topic to discuss because in terms of like welfare advocacy, I think this is a very important thing for people to consider because um, it it helps remove blame from yourself um, and just helps people to realize that like part of welfare is doing what you can with the resources that you have access to. Uh, so for me with my horses, like they're not in the perfect situation I would like them to be in. I wish they had access to a several acre field, like even like hundreds of acres of like forested land, natural streams, hills, different types of terrain, and just the amount of space that they could need to have like a real big horse herd and just be horses. Um, I wish that I could provide that for them. However, I live in an area where it is very wet and generally speaking, the most normal form of turnout that you get when you're boarding is just like a paddock or an in and out paddock, paddock with shelter. It is very hard to find year round 24 seven turnout in groups. Very, very hard, especially in a boarding situation. So as far as things go, my horses are quite fortunate for the area that they're in, even if I don't love the whole situation and I wish that they'd have more space. Um, on top of that, like the other thing is to like not owning your own property. Like I don't own any heavy equipment to make fixing the field easy. Um, we were lucky enough to rent my uncle's excavator last year to do that. However, um, we can't always do that. Um, and when stuff piles up after the winter with like how wet it is here, you can't move all of the muck and clean the field yourself by hand because the amount of time it would take by hand is probably like 50 times the amount of time you could do um, in a machine and you'd be able to do it better with a machine plus like when it's wet like this moving material even with a machine when it's wet you can't always do you have to wait for drier times so the field gets mucky over the winter um, and unfortunately because we had an atmospheric river this winter for those of you who don't know it's like huge, huge portions of rain and precipitation coming down. That is like the amount of rain we were getting in over the course of the month, more than that, all in the course of like two or three days. Uh, so we did redo the footing before this winter and it was looking really great. But then when all that wetness came in, it washed away a lot of what we did. Um, so it was basically just like lighting money on fire. And then of course, the muck and everything piled up with the weather. And since we don't have machinery to use, like it was very, very difficult to get wheelbarrows in and out. And we had to use the gator a lot of the time. That's the one piece of machinery that I can use, but you can't use it to like push and haul wet footing. We just use it to um, pick by hand and put stuff into and then drive it out because we couldn't get a wheelbarrow th through the ground because it was so saturated with water that if it was like even the slightest bit heavy, it would just sink into the ground. So they're in way more mud right now than I would want them to be. However, like we've nailed down someone to come and clean the field for us with a tractor that we're going to be hiring to do that. But the weather has to cooperate because they can't do it when it's really, really wet out because the footing is way too heavy, even for heavy machinery to move. So I can look out there and it stresses me out because I want it to be fixed and I want it to be done. But realistically, I can rationalize the fact that they will survive until we are actually able to do that and that I'm doing the best I can in the situation that I have available to me. Um, and additionally, like with the fact that they have a stable herd, they're all able to live out together full time. They are 
a lot more fortunate than a lot of horses in the area. So I can also recognize that like they may not have everything I wish to provide for them one day, but they do have access to a lot of ability to practice species appropriate behavior. They have free choice forage, they have their friends, and they have the freedom to go wandering around and do things, even if I wish that their turnout was more engaging. And this is the mindset I think more horse people need to adopt because when we're consuming information that is being put out there that criticizes a lot of traditional care practices and points out some of the welfare implications of them, it's really easy to start feeling crappy about yourself. Um, and a lot of people's way of handling that is to deny the information itself and pretend that it's not relevant or that it doesn't apply to their horse and that like every horse is different. Not all horses need friends, not all horses need free choice forage, and not all horses need freedom. Um, even though there's not really a whole lot of evidence that that is the case um, and it's just an easier means of the person having to grapple with the discomfort of not being fully satisfied with their situation maybe and then having scientific fact and research information also further point out the fact that it's not an ideal situation situation. So I think that it's important for people to look at their situation, look at the pros and cons, and also still be able to recognize the weaknesses, but then understand when they are doing the best that they can with the resources that they have to offer. Because for example, if you're boarding and you're at the mercy of your boarding facility and you found a boarding facility that feeds good quality enough hay, that has good staff, that takes care of your horse and has decent turnout, but isn't everything you'd want it to be and maybe doesn't offer group turnout. If you're in an area where it's very hard to find group turnout or where the places that do offer it, the turnouts are too small and there's lots of fighting in the groups and so on and so forth. You can look at that situation and go, okay, my horse is alone, but they have a shared fence line. They have this, they have that. And the alternative would potentially be more dangerous and more stressful for them. Or I cannot yet provide that alternative. So I'm doing the best that I can. And you can do that while recognizing the fact that horses are herd animals who are supposed to be interacting with each other and supposed to have the ability to interact in groups and supposed to be out full time moving around grazing with their heads down. You can recognize all of those things while also recognizing the fact that you're doing your best with the situation that you have. Similarly, people who have horses who have IR sensitivities and cannot go out on large amounts of grass, in theory you could be at a place that has beautiful luscious turnouts and you could wish to death that your horse could go out on that paddock, but if they have something that renders them unable to do so, you can recognize the fact that the best you can do is providing them with free choice hay that is safe for them to eat in little slow feeders and moving it around their area that they do get turned out in so that they can try to practice more normal grazing behaviors. And basically just add enrichment to make up for the instances where the situation your horse is in may be lacking. And that's doing the best you can for your horse. That's being a welfare advocate and that's advocating for the best interests of your horse in the best way that you can. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is because I find that a lot of people get super defensive when information is being shared that conflicts with their beliefs or what they were taught and led to believe or how their horse is cared for. And they're very quick to jump on the defense and try to be like, oh, well, my horses are different. Not all horses need group turnout. Not all horses like being out in a paddock. Not all horses want to be out of their stalls. Some horses like their stalls. And they'll just start making excuses for why what is very credible science doesn't apply to their horse rather than considering like, hey, I'm doing the best with the resources I have and like the reason why my horse is stalled is because they're on stall rest or the reason why my horse can't have friends is because I don't have control over this facility and I don't get to make that call and there's not anywhere that I can find where I would be allowed to do that in a safe way. And 
you can acknowledge the information that is put in front of you. You can appreciate the validity of it. You can learn from it and you can use it to enrich the life that your horse has um, and try to make changes to make it better where you can. So for example, horses who are on stall rest or horses who don't get as much access to turnout as what they'd need, you could do stuff like getting them toys, getting them different types of hay feeders, getting them different types of hay, getting them little horse safe forage branches that you can replace daily so that they can have foraging behaviors within the stalls, getting them different types of toys like hay balls, lickets, um, Kong equine, or anything like that where they can just kind of interact with it and apprise them with a little bit more enrichment and entertainment to make the best out of a situation that may not be quite as ideal. Um, and that's what you can do to advocate for your horse and be a good owner in the circumstances where you may not have the amount of control that you wish you had. Um, and I think that we need to talk about that more because a lot of horse people view it as black and white where it's like um, if someone says that horses need friends, freedom, and forage, and my horse is not getting all those to the fullest extent, then I am a bad owner. And that's not what it has to be. You can be a good owner while recognizing the fact that, like, hey, my horse does not have the perfect situation, but a lot of horses don't, and I'm doing the best I can with the resources I have, and that being aware of where you are lacking in the care is how you can actually start to enrich and better the life of the horse within the situations that they have, within the situation that you have available to you. Um, also, so if you're like a leaser or a lesson kid, you can recognize the fact that like, hey, like I don't have control over where these horses live, what they eat, um, and usually not also the equipment that they ride in, but you can advocate for them where they can. Like if you're riding a horse for a lease horse that you know doesn't get turnout enough or doesn't have any access to socialization, you can do stuff like hand grazing them on the days that you're around and walking them around to the property so that they can practice natural grazing and foraging behaviors and have something that's like a little bit of a treat um, and allows them some enrichment and you can provide for them provide that for them where you can and try to make the best of a situation that may not be ideal. It doesn't require to anyone to go into denial and be like, oh, well, my horse is not at risk of these potential welfare deficits that are associated with like excess time spent stalled or time spent alone and so on and so forth. You can acknowledge the risk factors of certain care practices and try to mitigate them with what is within your power. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad owner. Um, and I bring this up because when I share a lot of this information and I'm trying to like, yeah, like sharing my, my views on like the stalling is a big one because that's one that I'm pretty passionate about because it was something that I deprived my horses of for a very, very long time. So it's something that I'm really passionate about educating people on and sharing about because it makes such a huge difference in horses' behavior on the ground and under saddle and when they're just hanging out by themselves in their turnout area or wherever it is. Um, the ability to interact with other horses and have autonomy and turnout and engage and do things that enrich their lives really makes a difference in their behavior under saddle and also how they interact with people and the, their general happiness. So since I grew up in a situation where my role models did not emphasize the importance of turnout and social play for horses, and also they normalized a lot of stress behaviors in horses to me, I spent years depriving my horse of something that caused physical and mental issues in him and made him less happy and also made him less fun to ride and made him more difficult to ride um, without being aware of it. Like it wasn't my intention. I never wanted to do wrong by him. I was just following the instructions of people I trusted and people that I viewed to be professionals and experienced in the industry. And at no point did I ever like intentionally deprive my horse of those basic needs. I was just following instructions and advice that I viewed as credible because my trainer portrayed themselves as a credible horse 
professional that I could trust. And that's part of the problem too in this industry is that there's so few um, credentialing programs and regulatory boards that actually ensure that horse professionals are as experienced and knowledgeable as they claim they are. So this allows a lot of people to pose as someone with expertise and knowledge to present certain things as fact, um, all while perpetuating misinformation, which we see a lot, like where trainers will mislabel stress and pain behaviors, they'll mislabel certain horse behaviors, and they'll also overemphasize horses' cognitive abilities or underemphasize them or over or underemphasize the importance of certain care practices. And we see this with stalling a lot where it's become like a very normal commonplace idea that horses need stalls to the point where it's not really uncommon to see horse people turning up their noses at the idea of horses living out full time or getting muddy and like being out with other horses. They view it as something that like hot like less high-end horses live like um and like kind of like the whole stall and fancy barn board is viewed as like the gold standard of horse care by a lot of people despite the fact that from what we know about horses scientifically and like how they function mentally and physically that stalling is associated with some of the most problems in horse care like there's a reason why colic is so high up on the like on the mortality list for what causes death to horses um that like that is technically like an unnatural circumstance and it's because of the prevalence of stalling practices and also the prevalence of feeding practices that don't allow horses to trickle feed and forage how they're supposed to and also the stress of this lifestyle increases the risk of colic and then the stress of the lifestyle also increases risk of stereotypic behaviors like cribbing and weaving and so on and so forth. So it's an issue that is so ingrained in the horse world that it creates a lot of problems, but then people don't associate those problems and those risk factors with what is actually causing them due to misinformation and being fed a lot of BS by people who are posing as professionals. Um, and the problem with this too is that since like shows and the, like big organizations that we have in the horse world that are supposed to be like the gold standard of horse care and um, training and like showing and whatnot, they don't set a whole lot of regulations to protect the horses in the way that they probably should. And they also don't really stress the importance of proper management, nor is it viewed as like an important thing to educate all riders on. Uh, so for example, like USEF, Equine Canada and FEI, there's a lot of rules that fail to actually pr properly protect horses. For example, like I've said it before in other podcasts, like certain bidding regu regulations, like for show jumping and barrel racing are some of the worst because they virtually have nothing like you, you can use pretty much whatever you want on your horse bit wise so there's very little protections in place to ensure that riders aren't using harsh equipment as a band-aid fix for behavioral problems in their horse that exist under saddle due to a lack of foundational training or due to pain or due to stress from management discomfort or training stress um and since people are allowed to do that, it's viewed as a non-issue because a lot of people have the assumption that if something was a viable welfare issue, that horses would already be protected from it. And that's another issue with the whole stalling thing, too. The fact that there's so few regulations um, in animal welfare and animal cruelty laws that actually protect animals like horses and actually mandate, like, okay, like, horses should have access to this amount of space for the majority of the day for their care. Otherwise, like, it's illegal to have them in this amount of, this, like, too small of a space for the vast majority of the time they spent in the day, their daily time budget. Since there's not really a lot of stuff that protects them like that in North America, it leads people to thinking that it's 
it's not a problem because they're like, oh, if it was a welfare issue, they'd be protected by like animal cruelty laws. But instead of recognizing the fact that animal cruelty laws fail to protect horses in a lot of ways and that we have a lot of tradition-based practices that are not upheld by science and that cause a lot of welfare issues and that are studied to be associated with a lot of welfare implications, people assume that they're not an issue because they're not talked about enough and they're not taught by some of the more prominent figures in the industry. Um, and this kind of allows people to let themselves off the hook, but it comes from a place of under education and ignorance and also a largely tradition-based uh, industry that is really, really led by money. So people who have the money to be prominent in the industry and go to lots of shows and buy fancy horses are viewed by a lot of other people within the horse world to be more experienced and more knowledgeable and have the better standards of horse care when that really isn't the case. Like, in fact, there's quite a few studies out there that actually show a greater instance of conflict and stress behaviors in upper level competition horses versus horses who are either not competing or are competing at the lower levels. There there isn't really any correlation that indicates better welfare as horses become more expensive or more prestigious in competition. So it tells us that competition isn't a good way to judge welfare, nor is the prestige of a certain rider or trainer. And yet this is what people seem to value the most in the horse world because people value show results and general, um, general like reputation over factual information that is heavily researched without bias. Uh, and the problem with that is like reputation and show results can and do often carry a bias. Whereas peer reviewed studies um, and information that has been researched over the course of decades is a lot less likely to carry the same amount of bias as personal opinions and opinions that are led largely by status and finances. Um, because like, for example, like how prominent someone is in the show world is a status thing. Whether or not they are rich, if they are well known in the horse community and a famous upper level rider, they have status. And that status means that they can say a lot more things and have them accepted and viewed as fact, whether or not they actually are, than the average person can. Whereas on the flip side, someone who does not show and is not as well known in the horse community and doesn't have like impressive accolades in the show world, they can say things even if they have a better education and they're more researched and they have like credible evidence to prove what they are saying, they are a lot more likely to be discredited under the basis of like, oh, you haven't competed to X level or you haven't done this or that. So you don't know because people have this mindset that like upper level competition horses or certain breeds or certain disciplines are inherently different than the rest of the horses as a species when there's no evidence of that. Like we see the same trends in horses in terms of the deficits they experience from being stalled too much or certain training programs and whatnot, we see the same trends um, across breeds, genders, and disciplines. So we know that horses are meant to be social herd animals. We know that when that is taken away from them and when they lack the ability to move and graze and forage, that it impacts their welfare and their health. So that's what contributes to stuff like colic and stereotypic behaviors and other types of vices and health issues that we see. Like a lot of it is directly related to our care practices. And it is so prevalent in the horse community that people view the prevalence of bad care practice as an indicator that it is the correct care practice rather than as an indicator that for a long time we have been doing the wrong thing and abiding by tradition and stubbornly refusing new information. Um, and we've led it to become this commonplace 
theme where horses aren't necessarily having their needs met to the extent that they do because it is very common in boarding barns to do set hay feedings where horses are getting like one or two flakes per feeding and then they're going hours and hours without hay which we know can cause ulcers and we know causes behavioral issues and we know is not the best for their health because their their digestive system is made to be pretty much constantly intaking food so if we don't allow them the ability to do that they have to suffer mentally and physically because of it because their body is engineered to constantly be consuming food like and not giving them food doesn't stop their stomach from producing acid it doesn't stop their innate need to want to be foraging so when they can't do that they have to find alternative means of entertaining themselves and addressing the pain which usually comes out in stereotypic behaviors and behavioral problems that we see under saddle um so i think it's really important for horse people to start like, be, like, first of all, like, be gentle on yourself in terms of, like, when information comes out that feels uncomfortable and makes you question the care of your horses or your lease horses or what, whatever your association is with the horse. Information comes out and it's hard for you to grapple with because it criticizes a care practice or a training practice that you've had normalized to you. It can be hard to deal with, but be gentle with yourself and understand the degree of misinformation in the horse world and how few credentialing boards there are to actually adequately protect people and horses from misinformation and incorrect um, teaching practices. So when you find this out, realize that a lot of people have been in the same boat for you and they might have even engaged in things that are harmful to the horses for years. But if you were not aware of the fact that it was harmful, you weren't intentionally causing harm to your horse. So you shouldn't view the release of information as a statement on whether or not you're abusing your horse or whether or not you love your horse enough. Uh, you should view it as information that you can intake and then you use it then to try to better the care where you can um, instead of being closed off to it and being so sensitive to it that you don't want to view it for what it is because a lot of people instead of being open to information and learning how to define a credible source versus one that is not credible they will just immediately refute and choose to disbelieve any information that conflicts with their current beliefs and this is cognitive dissonance and it's not helpful to the horse or the rider because it stagnates the growth of the rider and then the horse unfortunately has to deal with the implications of their rider refusing to believe uh, factual evidence. And again, like I said, this is encouraged by the people in the horse world that are viewed as the most knowledgeable. So a lot of riders from a very young age are indoctrinated into care practices that do not serve their horses well and cause a lot of the behavioral problems that we do not like to see under saddle and on the ground. And it makes horses more dangerous and more difficult to handle. But a lot of people aren't aware of this correlation because it's not taught to them. A lot of people aren't taught how to read basic behavioral cues for horses or what actual proper management for horses should look like and what some of the major missing components in good management are in the average care of the horse. And because we've continued with this tradition for so long, and because there is not a standard of education for all riders across the board, and because people don't often respect credible, factual, scientific information more than they do the opinions of big names in the horse world, we are kind of in this circular problem where we create a lot of behavioral problems that will then be blamed on other factors that didn't actually cause them and are then used to justify to further deprive horses of fair training and welfare practices. So 
it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because a lot of the behaviors people don't want to see and a lot of the behaviors people use to justify isolating horses, keeping them stalled, or certain types of harsh training practices are actually the result of bad management and bad training, but then they're used to justify bad management and bad training. For example, horses who are aggressive to other horses. A lot of horses grow up poorly socialized. They grow up frustrated. They have ulcers and other types of discomfort due to poor management practices and frustration from not being able to socialize, not being able to move around enough, and just being chronically bored. So then, of course, they don't know how to interact with other horses and they will be aggressive. Or, of course, a horse who has stalled most of its life. When you put it out in a big open area, it's going to run because, first of all, it has a ton of energy that it has not been able to release for years. And secondly, it's overstimulating and scary to be going from a very restricted understimulating area to suddenly a large area where they can do lots of things and there's lots of things that they can watch and see going on. It can be very hard for an animal to cope with that and there's a certain level of adjustment period that should be associated with that. But the problem is people will view bad behaviors or unwanted behaviors or instances where the horse is endangering themselves um, as a reason to continue depriving them of the very thing that actually led to that behavior rather than viewing the behavior as a symptom of an underlying problem that isn't being properly addressed and probably needs to be gone about more slowly so that the horse isn't going into shock and going way over threshold as they try to adjust to a different care practice. It's not a sign that horses don't like turnout or don't like other horses or that they don't need those things. It's a sign that they are dealing with behavioral dysfunction due to disordered keeping and care practices. Um, and the problem with people viewing it as the other way is that it gives them excuses to continue doing what they're doing and just try to like label their horse's behavior as like a quirk or the horse's personality or just how they are or say their horse doesn't like other horses or claim that their horse likes a certain type of bit that the mechanics of it are used to induce pain and discomfort in order to force the horse to comply faster. People will take the compliance as the notion that the horse likes the equipment rather than taking the compliance as a sign that the equipment works in a manner that forces the compliance sooner. Um, and the lack of ability to kind of like key cause and effect together, uh, it, it results in a lot of horse people being unable to help the horses to the degree that they do. And then it unfortunately results in a lot of band-aid fixes that result in horses either having to shut down and just deal with chronic discomfort and unhappiness, or eventually they have major dangerous behavioral problems that impact the horse and their ability to find homes um, and ability to stay in safe situations. But the behavioral issues are the fault of people. A really good example of this is cribbing because cribbing devalues horses on average by like 30% in one study that they've done on this. Um, and like just from my anecdotal experience, like cribbers are notoriously hard to sell. People don't want them. But cribbing is a vice that is created by humans. Like it is our fault. It only exists because of keeping practices we normalize. But then it devalues horses and results in lowered welfare for horses and people wanting them less and having them be harder to rehome. But it's a behavior that we caused. But it's also a behavior that we don't like. And instead of rallying for the change to make it so that we're not seeing it occur to the degree that it does. People just complain about the behavior itself. They don't want to see the behavior. Barns don't want cribbers. They don't want the horses to be as valuable and people just don't like the behavior. So the horse ends up suffering and accepting the sole blame for a problem that is the result of people and their care of the horse. Um, and it's sad. So like this all starts with education. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because I do understand that like 
new information coming out on horses that criticizes normalized care and training practices that we've been doing for decades and just like and that you may have initially seen no issue with it can be really hard to grapple with information that conflicts with your beliefs um and it's a lot easier to pretend that the information itself is wrong even if it's coming from a way more credible source than the initial information that you received as an equestrian but it's necessary and it's necessary for us to believe in the validity of certain research, especially on care and management practices, because I would argue that, like, the research on stalling and, like, herd dynamics and stereotypic vices in horses is some of the most researched aspects of horse care, and you'd be hard-pressed to find any studies that find positive correlations with time spent stalled, where there's, like, positive welfare correlations, because there's just such a, like, such a consistent outcome installed studies showing like higher instances of lameness, behavioral issues, stereotypic vices, colic, digestive issues in time spent in, in horses with the time spent stalled increased. So since we know this, like even if your horse is stalled more than what you want them to be, or even if they're on stall rest, being in denial of the reality of the risk factors is not helping you or your horse. In fact, it robs you of the ability to make changes in enrichment and what you offer your horse that could help your horse avoid development of certain types of mental health issues like stereotypic vices or colic and other risk factors like that. Being in denial just because you're kind of trapped in a position where you can't necessarily change the care to the degree that studies and information may suggest that you should it doesn't help your horse and it doesn't allow you to make up for detriments and shortcomings in care. So it's important, I think, for people to be open to information, but also to realize that doing the best you can with the resources you have is all you can do in the moment. Um, and you won't be able to do the best you can with the resources you have if you refuse to be open to factual information that may criticize certain care practices that you've been regularly doing. And I notice this a lot when I post like opinion pieces or even just like studies and certain things on certain aspects of horse care and training. People get very defensive, like even something as simple as calling negative reinforcement, negative reinforcement, people get their back up at the, the word negative, assuming that negative means bad and assuming that people are calling all types of pressure and release abusive and they get defensive and they allow that defensiveness to make them refuse to look further into the meaning of negative reinforcement and learn about operant conditioning and behavioral science. They just hear something that makes them insecure and they use that as a reason to get defensive and kind of dig their heels in and really lay into the care practices that they want to believe in. And it robs them of the ability to learn and better their horsemanship as a result. And I say this from experience because it's something that I definitely used to do. And honestly, it's still easy to get defensive at times because if people are criticizing the care of the animals you love, it's really easy to just get defensive because you you know that you love them and you know that you um, care about them and that you want them to be happy and well cared for and you want their best interests at heart. So when people bring forth information that questions the care practices you've set forth. It feels like a personal attack, but people need to start viewing information for what it is. It's just information. It's information you can take or leave to better your care practices, but you're better off taking it as the information it is rather than just shrugging it off because it makes you uncomfortable. Because if you shrug it off and you don't look further into it and you just assume it has no credibility because it is uncomfortable for you to hear, you're not opening the door for you to grow as a rider. Also, 
people like myself being really passionate about promoting good welfare practices and criticizing the normalized poor welfare practices, we're not criticizing the average horse person who is doing what they can with the resources that they have or who is engaging in care and training practices that they've had normalized and taught to them over lengthy periods of time and never been taught to question. We're not looking at those people as the main issue in the horse world because all they're doing is following instructions and following beliefs that were taught to them by perceived professionals. So they're not contributing to the biggest amount of misinformation that is being given out there. It's the professionals and the people that are posing as knowledgeable individuals and giving out misinformation that are actually disrupting this the most. However, it is everyone's responsibility to continue growing and learning and being open to new information. And the share of information needs to happen. So I think the most concerning thing in the horse world is the desire to lay into traditional care practices and the desire to try to silence the sharing of information because it may make some people uncomfortable. Like, I personally don't view it as necessary or productive to coddle people to the point where you don't share information as the factual information that it is because it might hurt someone's feelings. So when I share stuff on stalling and I say that Time spent stalling massively increases the risk of colic and other physical and mental health issues in horses. It's not to say everyone who stalls their horse is abusive and you should be ashamed of yourself. It's to say, hey, the more time your horse spends in a stall, the more at risk they are for these types of behaviors. So being aware of that and looking at ways you can better their situation and their care and make up for any deficits in care is important for doing the best you can for your horse, even if you still want to stall them. I recently did a post on TikTok where I answered a question that's like, what's a hill you'll die on? And I said, the hill I'll die on is that stalls are not for horses, they're for people. Horses don't need stalls. Humans are the ones who need slash want them. And this upset a lot of people because they took it as me saying, you suck if you stall your horse and you're abusing your horse, when that was never actually said. In fact, what I said in the video is that even in medical situations where horses need to be confined for rest, technically a stall is not necessary in order to do that. You can make a confined medical paddock with a shelter. You can build a little paddock inside in the indoor or in the barn somewhere. You can do stalls with half walls. You could even look, depending on the injury, you could do group housing practices where horses still have access to like a goat or a miniature horse so they're not alone. The option isn't just isolation in a fully boarded up stall wall. Like you don't need a stall to do medical small pens for healing soft tissue injuries and other types of things. Like all you need is a confined area. So the stall itself is not actually necessary. So even in cases where horses technically need stall rest, the only purpose of stall rest is to restrict movement or to provide a horse with a cleaner, more sanitary area to heal. And you can provide that without it specifically being a stall. But people took it as me saying horses don't need stalls as saying you suck if your horse is ever stalled and you're abusive if your horse is ever stalled. And there's no reason why a horse should ever need to go in a stall. Um, but like it's all, it all comes down to resources. Like you can provide what a stall provides with a shelter, with a confined medical paddock, with access to an in and out and so on and so forth. Like it doesn't specifically need to be a stall. Horses need access to shelter and a stall can be used to provide such shelter, but it is not necessary for it to specifically be a stall. And the way I went about saying this offended a lot of people and it got them super defensive to the point where even when I said, 
if you're using a stall for stall rest, I'm not telling you not to listen to your vet. Like, use the resources you have. All I'm saying is that you don't, like, people can provide what stall rest provides without it specifically being a stall that the horse is standing in. Like, you can confine them in other ways. And it made people really defensive, and it made some people feel like they need to justify and explain their horse care, which I found a little bit silly because it's like if you're using a stall for your resource as a shelter, you're using the resources you have access to. But it is important for people to consider the fact that we built stalls for human convenience and purposes that are specific to us. Horses themselves do not have an innate need to be separated and isolated from each other and go into a small box. Even like medical rest, like it isn't, it, it's in the best interest for the horse in that circumstance because they are healing an injury or an ailment. But the act of being confined and isolated is not something that a horse has an innate need for. So if you're depriving horses of innate species-specific needs for medical purposes, that is a lot different than people doing it out of sheer preference or out of just not being aware of what horses actually need. So looking at like the the realities around ho how horses are intended to be cared for and how their minds and bodies actually work. It's not about achieving perfection and just like just taking it so black and white where you go, oh, time spent with increased stalling increases risk of colic. So anyone who stalls their horse is someone I should not respect and is someone who clearly doesn't love their horse enough. That's not what you should do. You should look at it as stalls have become normalized and commonplace to the point where it is very hard to find situations that horses can live and grow up in that do not involve stalling. Um, and the way that we've traditionally built stalls is with the intention of isolating horses from each other. Now we know better so we can start to reform the way in which we view the traditional modern barn being built. Like we can start to look at group housing practices, in and out stalls, so horses at least have the autonomy to seek when to leave the stall. Even just access to an in and out stall with a small paddock can dramatically reduce the instance of stereotypic behaviors and stall vices. Um, so it, it's just kind of reforming that way and like starting to go, okay, we don't need stalls to be fully boarded up with wooden walls that don't allow horses to see each other. We could do half walls because that allows for mutual grooming. We could do bars because that allows for horses to touch noses. And we can start to provide the, the necessity of social interaction for horses, even in cases where they cannot go out and group field turnout or be living out 24-7. But that first requires us to recognize the shortcomings of current care practices, which cannot happen if people are so in denial and so desperate to be perceived as the perfect horse owner who has care that is without any detriment, which honestly, how many horse people can say that? Like any animal owner, there's probably something that could be improved in the care of your animal in theory, but it doesn't mean that that thing is immediately available to you in a feasible way. But like, there's very few people who are caring for people or animals in a perfect way. Like we're imperfect creatures. You make mistakes. Even if you're very well-intentioned or going out of your way to do what's best for your animal, you can make mistakes out of ignorance, which is the case for a lot of horse owners because of the amount of misinformation that is out there. It's not about perfection. It's about recognizing modern information, learning about credible sources and how to define them, and then applying that to your situation in the best way you can. So, it's about not getting defensive to the point where you want to shut down the sharing of information or where you want to argue the validity of scientific fact and research, despite the lack of information on your side to argue whether or not it is 
of merit. Uh, for example, we see this with people who are desperate to believe the idea that horses are capable of respect or dominance. And a lot of people that believe this, they're not necessarily the ones that are actively seeking to dominate their horse or punish their horse under the assumption that their horse is deliberately disrespecting them. A lot of people don't use this mindset for that purpose, but they still believe it. However, perpetuating the idea that horses can deliberately respect or disrespect people or that they seek to dominate each other or humans for the sheer purpose of dominating dominance and being more powerful. That's harmful because it gives license to the people who do use that as a reason to be abusive or cruel or to be extremely punishing and blame the horse for things. It normalizes the idea and gives them license to justify higher levels of punishment under the belief that their horse is deliberately disrespecting them when they offer an unwanted behavior. So even when people don't use that mindset to do that to their own horses, perpetuating it as a valid mindset impacts horses in a negative way because the mindset is so frequently used to blame horses for their behavior and assume that horses are deliberately doing things to piss us off or disrespect us or assert dominance over ourselves or horses. And this results in people viewing resource guarding behaviors as dominance-based when they see horses fighting and they'll view horses as dominant or being assholes and they'll want to label them. And the labeling of that and misconception of how horses actually think and function results in poor welfare practice, even if you're not the one directly contributing to it. Um, and it goes the same with, like, stalling. People's denial of how stalling can cause welfare deficit results in people who are stalling way too much and using stalling for selfish purposes and who may have access to the resources to have their horse out more and stalled less. It gives them license to keep their horses confined more and feel righteous in doing so and feel like there's no risk factors because people are normalizing that care practice to the point where they're denying factual information that is very well researched. Like, like as I said, stalling is one of the more researched aspects of horse care. Um, but with like the whole respect thing in horses and how they, um, understand things, like, we know what the horse brain looks like. Like, they have dissected it. They've done brain scans. Like, we know horses do not have a highly developed prefrontal cortex, which is the portion of the brain that would be associated with understanding complex cognitive things like respect. And even if they did, the thing with respect is that it differs from culture to culture. Horses do not understand human culture. They learn how to interact with humans through trial and error and through being reinforced or corrected for certain things. And it teaches them how to interact with people in a way that is most likely to get them what they wanted or most likely to keep them out of trouble. It has nothing to do with respect. So even if they could respect each other and if they had the brain capacity to do so, their idea of respect would be entirely different from how humans view it. Because even between different cultures, like Western culture, what we view as respect in North America could be very different than how people show respect in Japan or other areas like that. And you could end up accidentally disrespecting someone in their culture while maintaining a respectful attitude that would be viewed as respectful in your culture. So even on the off chance that we find that we've completely 
misrepresented how the horse's brain works. If horses are capable of that higher cognitive function, there's no reason to believe that they're also capable of being able to understand and define how humans want to be respected. There's absolutely no context for them to do that. They don't speak our language. They are herd animals. They're flight animals. They're not, they're, they're very different from us in terms of their thinking capabilities because it's all, it's all engineered in their function as a flight animal. So with that in mind, like, I think it's, it's foolish for people to be so set in their ways that they refute pretty significant scientific research and evidence on the off chance that perhaps something that um, criticizes the current school of thought will arise and show that everything we've currently believed in research and the direction that evidence is headed is wrong. It makes no sense to latch on to the possibility that it could be wrong so hard that you refuse to believe where the evidence is headed. Always be open to the possibility of science being contradicted as we have more evidence, but don't be so linked to that, that you don't want to look at where the evidence is headed. As soon as there is relevant evidence to dispute scientific claims that we currently believe, then people would be empowered in doing so and believing that it's not hard evidence. Or in situations where there isn't enough evidence on a topic to viably believe it as um, credible research, then you can go, okay, I'm going to leave that. Like, I, I looked at this, I'm considering it, but I'm going to wait for there to be more research first. That's okay, but being so stuck in your ways that you don't want to look at where evidence is heading despite the fact that there's significant evidence pointing in one direction and virtually nothing on the other side. That's just being stubborn and that's just digging your heels in at the expense of your horse's welfare. Uh, and again, it's not about perfection. You can be aware of modern science and research and be open to it being disproven while still applying care practices that are the most researched and most linked to positive welfare. And same with training practices. You can do certain things and you can believe in certain things as you wait for more evidence to arise, but completely refuting heavily researched topics that are showing similar trends across species, it, it's a foolish thing to do with the like when the information is all heavily weighted on one side and you're standing on the side that has very little research in your favor and you're standing there in hopes that eventually something will come up that will undo all of the heavy research on the opposing side to you. Um, it makes more sense to, yeah, be open to change, but don't be so stuck in your ways that you're latching onto the idea that perhaps something that is causing you to feel uncomfortable and causing you to, uh, feel like you are being pulled in two different directions because of your beliefs versus what the evidence shows. Don't be so stuck on that, that you're going to basically stagnate your growth as a horse person and a horse caretaker um, in hopes that eventually something may or may not be disproven. Uh, be open to the fact that it could be, but maybe wait for the evidence to actually be in favor of that side before you heavily dig your heels in and you're like, this is the direction I want to go. But also, like I said, don't be so hard on yourself that you read this information and you proceed to beat yourself up and feel like a terrible horse person because you don't have access to all of the resources you wish you could provide for your horse. Doing the best you can in the situation you have with the resources you have is all that you can do. Uh, like I said, with my own horses, I'm aware of where there's deficits in their welfare and where they could be doing better, but I do what I can to enrich the life that they have, and my eventual goal is to be able to provide them with the life that I would like to provide them with that would allow them more access to land and species-appropriate behaviors and larger herds and the ability to just develop better social skills and have more space to entertain themselves and just be horses. That's my goal. 
but I can also recognize the fact that in their area, they are doing very, very well in terms of how many of their needs are met. Um, and addition, like they're not having their main needs of friends, freedom, and forage removed in any significant way. So there isn't even, it, like I'm not at the point now where I should go, oh, I need to move out of my immediate area in order to be more fair to my horses because they're still able to have constant access to forage. They're still able to develop social skills and friendships and they are still able to exercise their right to autonomy um, to an extent. They don't have as much autonomy as they would if they're out on 100 acres of engaging different landscapes, but they do still have more autonomy than the vast majority of horses in my area. And they have more access to group socialization and they don't exemplify any significant stereotypic behaviors. Uh, if I was seeing my horses develop cribbing and weaving vices and showing high instances of stress, that would be a sign that I need to do way more changes in my care practices to help better their living situation. Uh, so keeping an eye on your horse and the degree of stress that they experience or if they seem shut down or if they seem in pain and being mindful of how you can slightly alter the environment to better them, that's the best that you can do with the resources that you have access to. It's not about perfection. It's not about being the model owner to the point where you're following like the perfect ideal of horse care to the point of like trying to move somewhere that you can be on a hundred acre property and taking all your horses there or just deciding to sell your horses because your guilt is so much that you can't go on. It's about providing what you can to the best of your ability and also being self-reflective enough and holding yourself accountable enough to allow for that personal growth and to allow for you to continue educating yourself and also to be mindful of the fact that a lot of your idols and your trainers and your role models could be perpetuating misinformation that they were taught by their idols and their role models or that is consistently reinforced to them in their community because there is a lot of misinformation and poor care and training practices that are consistently reinforced and reiterated uh, by other horse people. So it's really hard to break free of that when there's such a huge portion of people that are choosing to be willfully ignorant or being educated by other ignorant people that are spreading misinformation. It's really hard to avoid misinformation and bad care practices because of the degree to which it is normalized. Um, so like being aware of that and being gentle with yourself as you grow and better your practices is something that's necessary. Making mistakes that you made when you were ignorant and when you weren't aware of the extent of certain issues or certain training methods and their deficits, making mistakes then, you made them without knowing what you were doing. It wasn't intentional, but when you know better, you can do better. So as soon as you develop that education and start to learn how to do better, all you can do is kind of keep continuing those baby steps and stepping in the right direction and trying to continue growing and bettering yourself as a rider. It's not about perfection. It's not about trying to meet criteria to the point where you are holding yourself to the same level of accountability and ability to provide for large herd turnout as someone who lives in a much more rural area. It's about looking at what you can do in your area and also what you can do with your schedule and your own abilities. For example, if you live in a city and there's no turnout in your city, but if you travel 20 minutes outside of that city, you can find a better living situation for your horse. It might be worth considering 
commuting a little bit further to better your horse's welfare significantly because it would allow for you to enjoy your horse more because improved welfare results in improved behavior and less problem behaviors and it would just be happier for both you and your horse so that like there's options to consider and it's about weighing out the pros and cons and doing what you can in your situation rather than feeling guilty or lashing out at other people because they're offering information that makes you feel uncomfortable because Hiding information and not presenting fact as fact in because we worry about hurting people's feelings, that's not how we grow as a community. It is the responsibility of the human being that is reading the information to deal with their feelings. It's not the responsibility of people sharing it. And this isn't to say that we should just be like bullying people and saying things in a really mean way. But if you're if you're presenting information as fact because it is researched as that, you shouldn't have to feel guilty for people being offended by that or feeling targeted by that because they are projecting that onto you. It is not your responsibility. And this is something that I've had to learn with being online too, because obviously I'm a very opinionated person and I share a lot of things. But people feeling reactionary or targeted by what I say when I'm sharing generalized opinions, that is them projecting their own internalized guilt and insecurity onto me and what I am saying, because they are treating a generalized opinion that never was about them as if it's a statement on their specific care, something that I don't know anything about. And I can't preface everything I say with every possible exception to the rule because that's not reasonable to do so and that would require trying to consider everyone's exact situation so that I can go oh well like if this happens and you have to do this that's fine like that that you're still doing the best that you can like I can't think of every specific instance to say to make everyone feel included and feel not targeted at the end of the day it's your job as a horse advocate and owner to deal with why certain information or certain posts or certain riders or certain people make you feel the way that you do. Because your feelings are your responsibility. And honestly, there was a lot of people online that triggered me with what they posted. And most of them were posting stuff that was well-researched and factual, but made me feel insecure because of my preconceived notions and beliefs that I had been taught by less educated people. And it was never actually the person themselves that was the problem. It was me internally and that internal struggle that I then projected onto the person and let color my opinion of that person, sharing information that made me feel targeted. And of course, sometimes people share information that is so far off base and so inaccurate that it does trigger me from the standpoint of them sharing information as if it is fact, despite the fact that it has been disproven or is not well respected by anyone with the education to actually produce such information as fact. It's triggering to me because they're spreading misinformation and I'm aware of how that can impact horses negatively. Um, So that's a little bit different, but I think like even then it's like up to me to realize like why that's triggering. And for me, like a lot of that comes down to like feelings of lack of control because I feel like I lack control and even my own horses care because like I said, I don't own the property and I don't have full control of things to the extent that I would like to. Um, And lack of control to better horses welfare situation and also just people's willful ignorance and desire to believe information that is poorly researched Um, or has been completely disputed, that's triggering to me because it's something that I used to do and I've seen how it negatively impacted my horse at the time and it's something that has taken years years and years and years of personal growth and reflection to grow out of. So I'm well aware of how that ignorance and um, 
how that stubbornness impacted me and my horses. And it's much more personal to me because of that. And that's why I find it more triggering for people to put out misinformation. Uh, similarly, as a professional in the industry, I see a higher instance of horses with problem behaviors and vices and dangerous behaviors that are the result of bad management practice or cruel training practices. And I see directly and specifically how these things impact horses and their behavior and how hard it is to fix those issues that they create. So I see a higher instance of horses who have been wronged by normalized bad care practices and bad training practices. And because of that, I'm way more sensitive to the gravity of the situation because I see the fallout that harsh training causes and that certain types of management practice causes. I see how the, the degree to which it impacts horses. And then I also see how they become better and how much their behavior is changed when they then have access to more species appropriate care practices and management practices like social turnout or even just the access to free choice forage or even just being treated for ulcers. Like I see how it like how changing their training and care impacts them positively but I also see the degree of negative care practice impacting horses to a much greater extent than the average horse person because my job is directly linked to get those types of horses specifically because those are the ones that come to me the most are the ones that need different types of care and like more of the science-based methodology because the other traditional more common means of training that are easier to access and way more prevalent in the community did not work for those horses so even owners who aren't initially open to positive reinforcement and treat training or even just the idea of their horses being out in turnout they're more likely to come to me because i am their last resort after they've tried all the other ways so I get to hear about a lot of these things or people who get horses from bad abusive situations that may be more forward thinking in their training. They'll send their horses to me because they'll be aware of what went wrong and what they want to fix. So I see a greater variety of these types of horses. So it's much more passionate and personal to me because not only did I used to deprive my horse of basic needs and use a lot of cruel, harmful training practices, I also see a lot of horses who are still directly suffering from that. And even if they're not ones that I get personally in training, I also see the follow-up behaviors in a lot of competition horses through watching stuff online. I also see a lot of normalized, abusive training practices on apps like TikTok and it's very triggering. So it's something that I find way more personal and it's something that I'm exposed to way more than the average horse person. So to many, it might seem like I'm overreacting or over exemplifying the instance of these problem behaviors. But realistically, I just see them more because I'm looking for them. I'm aware of how to find them. And I also see more of these horses who have these problems because they're the ones that are coming to me in the greatest quantities. So it's something that's so personal to me and it's hard and I get triggered easier by certain things because of that. And it's also my job to try to figure out how to navigate that. And it's been like an educational learning curve to try to figure out the best ways to put out information and the best ways to share my opinion on certain hot topics and address certain things uh, in a way where people are the most likely to be receptive. But like, I found that like no matter how much I've softened my voice and no matter how I try to explain things that people who are reactionary they'll watch like the first few seconds of the video or the podcast and then they won't listen to the rest of it and they'll base their opinion off of hearing what they already didn't like and never seeing it through so 
I can never make everyone happy because people choose not to listen to what I am saying in full and they choose to draw their own conclusions of my beliefs and how I'm feeling, regardless of how hard I try to explain things. And the same goes for people who are really, really rigid in their extremist views, even if they're advocates. Like it's kind of similar to what we see with the extremist vegan takes where they vilify anyone and everyone who is not vegan um, and take such a hard line where they basically view it as, oh, anyone who isn't trying as hard as I am in within like what I view as trying hard is just a bad person and doesn't care about animals enough. They fail to view the full scope of the situation and like view it as like an educational learning curve and also with what people have access to because with like especially with veganism like there's a lot of diet and health-based stuff too and also what people have access to in their family, what they have access to in their community and so on and so forth. Um, oversimplifying it to the extent where you go, anyone who's not as committed to this as I am is a bad person, is failing to recognize the holes in education that a lot of people experience and the misinformation a lot of people are fed, and also what they actually have access to in their community, because they can want to do better, they can want to do things more ethically, but there's more than one pathway to that, especially when you factor in what resources people have and what is immediately available to them. So with horses, it, it can be wrecking, like appreciating the fact that someone who is in a city environment has acknowledged the research on stalling and acknowledged that time spent stalled can be lead to behavioral detriments and health detriments and then trying to do as much as they can to limit the amount of time their horse spends in the stall even if the situation is not a perfect situation and like on the veganism standpoint it can be someone eliminating red meat from their diet or choosing to only get farm meat from like not factory farmed meat getting farm fresh eggs getting actual free-range eggs like for example me and my eggs with my chickens i view our chicken eggs as technically vegan because the chickens would eat them if we didn't and our chickens are well cared for and they're happy and they have autonomy and they are not kept in little tiny cages all stacked on top of each other uh shitting all over each other like they have a good life so i feel comfortable with doing that and similarly if i went to like a horse show for example and my horse has to be stabled at that show i can recognize that that's not ideal but when I do that I take my horse for way more walks I stuff way more nets in different areas of their stall and I'm conscious of how much more stressful that is for them and that's also why I've made more of a habit of hauling back and forth to local shows rather than stabling there because for me it's easier because I don't have to come driving out there multiple times a day to care for a horse that would otherwise be staying on my property um it's also better for my horse. And those are little things that I can do to better the lives of my horse and be more conscious of their needs that don't really inconvenience me that much and don't really, they're not that difficult to do, but they're things that I can take on to better their lives. So it's about doing the best you can in your situation that you have access to. And it's also important to realize that a lot of the people who are like impassioned animal advocates that are sharing information, their goal is to educate people into bettering their horse's as much as they can because doing something a little bit better is better than not doing anything at all and just staying stagnant and apathetic. Changing a little bit and moving towards the ideal welfare situation is better than just not moving at all and digging your heels in. So sharing of information and trying to help people out, it's about creating those little changes that kind of have like a snowball or domino effect where people are they realize that certain aspects of like changes in care or changes in training positively impact their horse and 
help them achieve things that they wanted to achieve easier or make their horse more enjoyable to work with. And then they start trying more and more things in that direction. So sharing education and like people talking about like positive reinforcement and talking about harsher training methods and how they're not necessary, like the harsher training methods, not positive reinforcement. It's about trying to get people to move further away from the harshness and further away from outdated training methods that we know to be more problematic and have a greater instance of poor application. It's about helping direct people away from that and into a more positive direction, not about immediately assimilating everyone into being exactly the same and on the same type of path and wavelength as any advocate may be. Because uh, honestly, like I have a lot of friends who are in like the whole science-based training realm and a lot of them use positive reinforcement way more than me. I use way more pressure and release than a lot of those people do because of my community and where I am in the horse world. Um, and sometimes I get clients who really don't want me to feed their horses treats. And if it's a behavior that I feel like I can train ethically enough without use of rewards, I will do it. But I've hit the point now where I'm working on, where if I'm working on extreme fear-based behaviors, like bad trailering issues, tying and so on and so forth, I don't like doing it without reward because reward is faster, more ethical and happier and more comfortable for the horse. So I like staying with things that I know work. And since I've done that enough times and I know that it's faster, I'm more firm on that. However, if I have a client who wants to send a horse to me to be trained in a way where I use non-escalating pressure and release and I'm going to have the horse in a softer, more considerate way than a lot of other trainers in the area, I'm still doing that horse a service by taking it on, even if it's not like the perfect fullest extent of the most ethical approach that you could take. Um, and I also view it the same with like the racetrack, for example. Horses at the racetrack are stable like when they're not working most of the time in North America. Um, I know that this is not ideal and I know it's not the most ethical practice and I know that if this were changed that we would see a dramatic difference in the behavior of these horses. So I very much believe in like promoting change in that industry and promoting the idea of like even just day paddocks for racehorses because I firmly believe that the vast majority of racetracks do have the space for it. It's just about allocating space differently because they use so much space just for patrons that are coming in to spend money, not for the horses. The horses are there running, earning the money for um, the casinos and the, the racetracks uh, and they deserve to have their well-being taken into account more. So I don't think, I think that most tracks in this world at least have some level of space to help better the living situation of the horse, even if it's just doing stalls that allow for more socialization. Um, and I think that that's possible and I'd like to see us move in that direction. However, I can also acknowledge the fact that a lot of people that are currently in the racing community have grown up in the racing community and have been exposed to the racing community from a young age and it's all that they've known. It's their main form of income and those people can love and care for their horses and they can handle them as ethically as they can in that environment, but they are limited by the industry that they are in and even if they would like to see changes, they can't make them happen immediately. So all they can do is be the stepping stone to the changes that they would like to see and be the most ethical in the situation they're in. So I can appreciate the fact that there is a lot of people at the racetrack that I respect as horse people and that I love how they handle their horses and I appreciate that while acknowledging the fact that those horses are stabled too much and that we would see a, a lower instance of stall vices and stress behaviors and behavioral issues in those horses if we made some changes to their management. On top of that, I can also recognize the fact that when I am working at the racetrack, 
if I have to lead a horse around in a lift chain because it is so pent up from being stalled so much that it is dangerous for me to handle, I can acknowledge the fact that the lift chain works in a way that's very aversive and uncomfortable to the horse, and I can acknowledge how it works, and I can acknowledge why it works. But for my own safety and the safety of not losing someone's horse in that situation, I may lead them with a lift chain if I absolutely have to, and I will lead them for, with a nose chain because that's kind of the normal standard practice there. I don't have to agree with the practice itself. I can acknowledge how we could render that practice unnecessary if we made some changes to the care of the horses. But when I'm in that scenario, I have to keep myself safe and I have to handle the horse in a way that keeps them as safe as possible. And I can acknowledge that it's uncomfortable and that it's unnecessary and that we should move towards the idea of not needing to do that. But in that circumstance, I am limited in my ability to help that horse to the extent that I can. And similarly, when I'm galloping racehorses, I can be on horses who are strung out and pent up from being stable all the time and who are behaving in a way that is more inherently dangerous because of that. And all I can do in that situation is offer them an, a safe outlet for that behavior and ride them as kindly and ethically as I can in that situation and also promote the type of change I would like to see. So if I can manage a horse who is notoriously difficult typically with less equipment than what it used to go in, that is a win to me because I'm showing people that soft, nice, kind riding makes a difference. And it shows people that it is possible to use less equipment and that you can have a horse actually be more manageable with less equipment than with more. Um, so setting that example is important to me and it's not about completely canceling anything that is not fulfilling the exact same beliefs that I have. It's about trying to move things in the right direction, but recognizing the fact that we have certain industry standards and practices that have been normalized over the course of decades or centuries and will take time to change. It's about trying to incite that change in a way that is safe for the horses and will help the people be the most receptive. Uh, because, for example, canceling the racing industry cold turkey, that's not safe for the horses. The number of displaced horses that would end up suffering far exceeds the number of horses who are suffering or breaking down at the track because you'd be taking away an industry that provides so many jobs and even people who love their horses and do not just view them as money makers if they no longer have the income to support their horses they can't take care of them anymore so it would be more damaging to those horses just to cancel the industry and be like I don't support racing boycott racing than it would be to push for the reform that you would like to see point out practices that you view as problematic and suggest potential solutions without necessarily vilifying people for using the solutions that they have in that type of environment environment. Um, and this is kind of the mindset that I take with like anything that I am doing. Like when I say I don't like the use of harsh bits, what I'm saying is I'm not going to use them myself unless I'm in imminent danger and literally have to get on a horse and have no other options of safely moving a horse from point A to point B without X piece of equipment. But in like in my training program, I'm not using lip chains. I'm not using gag bits. It's not what I believe in. I want to be the change that I would like to see. So when I have the most control to do things how I would like to do them, I'm going to do them my way. However, I can also recognize the fact that a student in a program with a trainer who doesn't know any other means of fixing a horse's bolting problem may be put in the position where they have to ride in a harsh piece of equipment. Is it that student's fault? No. It's the trainer's job to give the student solutions that are safe and ethical and kind. The student is merely following instructions. They don't have a say in it and they don't have the experience to really make an educated decision that is safe for both them and the horse. So they're limited in that situation with what they can do. Um, and this is why it's not good to view things in such a black and white way, because 
it causes people to vilify human beings that are honestly probably more on the same page as them than they would like to think. And it also closes the door for growth and learning that would happen if people didn't feel like they immediately had to be on the defense. So it's kind of a two-sided coin. We shouldn't be afraid of sharing information just because some people may be triggered by it because their triggers and their emotions and what they feel, it's ultimately their responsibility to figure out how to navigate that. It's not everyone else's responsibility responsibility to avoid sharing factual information in fear of potentially upsetting someone. Like, we shouldn't feel that we need to silence discussion about welfare topics and the direction the horse industry needs to head just because some people are paranoid about the industry being cancelled or having the way they ride and care for their horse put in jeopardy. Um, Their paranoia is their responsibility. We should still be discussing ways of reforming the industry. However, a complete ban or taking a hard line where it's like, oh yeah, let's ban all stalls and make that a legal law that no stall can ever exist. Like, that level of extremism doesn't help anyone. It puts people off and and it just like it it doesn't actually lead people towards a viable solution because it's too extreme you can have your views with like what you would like to see the end goal be but what people need to realize is the steps towards that goal are going to be a lot smaller so even for people who are anti-racing my opinion is that they should be supportive of people who are for reform and who people who are pushing in the direction that they'd like to see things go so if people are demonstrating better welfare practices or have ideas that would reform the industry in a way that is kinder to the horse, even if you would eventually like to see racing ended, pushing for reform that betters the horse's lives more immediately makes a lot more sense than being so set in your ways that you're like, no, I don't agree with that and I won't support that because it's not the full scope of what I want. Steps in your direction are still steps in the right direction. So, yeah, basically what I'm saying with this podcast is, like, I know that I say a lot of things and I have a lot of opinions on horse care that may make people feel targeted. But honestly, if you come sit down and talk to me, like, face to face, my views are not as rigid as what a lot of people think. It's not about vilifying anyone and everyone who uses a certain bit or equipment. It's about re-educating people so that it renders the need or the desire to use that equipment unnecessary because they have other tactics of getting to that goal or you've addressed the behavioral problems that are causing the issue that they felt necessitated a certain type of equipment. It's about educating people better ways of doing things so that they are more self-sufficient and they aren't so reliant on the advice and quote-unquote expertise of trainers who do not have the education to be passing off the information they're giving as fact. It's about providing better resources, more safeguards to ensure that professionals actually know enough to be giving out the information that they are, and just pushing things in the right direction. It's not about perfection. It's not about drawing a hard line. It's not about canceling all types of things immediately. It's about moving in the right direction so that even people who currently need to use harsh equipment, they have their horse's needs addressed in a way and any discomfort or pain addressed in the way that they no longer need that equipment. So, for example, people who overuse draw reins, teaching them how to build up a horse's biomechanics from the ground up and do so in a productive and safe way that has better results than the draw reins, soon they don't have a need to use draw reins because they have a better course of action of getting to the end goal. They just felt stuck in the moment that they chose draw reins because they didn't know another means of achieving that goal, and maybe the people helping them had no other solutions other than that, so they felt trapped and they sought out what was available to them to help change that. Um, It's not necessarily their fault, you know? Like, it's about leading them to the answers that allow them to 
make the changes that they didn't know were possible in a kinder, lighter way. And part of that is showing, first of all, that it's possible to do that through work with your own horses and clients and so on and so forth. But also a huge portion of that is education and just providing information. And that's what I try to do on my platforms. I try to provide information. I try to share my opinion. I try to talk about where I came from and what caused those changes and why and why this is so important to me to talk about because I know so many people love their horses and they want to do right by them and they're not even aware that they're doing wrong by them in the first place. They want to do the right thing and they want to have a more harmonious relationship with their horse. They want to have a calmer, happier horse. They don't want to be dealing with a high instance of behavioral issues all the time. They want the right solution but then they feel like a trapped animal and when people point out some flaws in their care then they lash out like a trapped animal because they don't know a solution that's viable and they feel targeted and attacked because they're doing the best that they have that they can with the information that they have and the knowledge base that they have and the resources that they have so it can be a really hard position to be in and I understand it because I have been there however it is the individual's job to try to continue educating yourself and I also think that we need to move towards the idea of like trainers trying to allow their clients to be more self-sufficient and providing them with the tools so that they can think and make decisions on their own without being so reliant on a trainer or a barn owner to do it for them. Like it's so common for students and horse owners to not know how to fix certain problems in their horse under saddle or not know how to set up their horse's diet or not know enough about trimming and shoeing to actually advocate for their those for their horse. So the education is so key because the more we know, the more we can advocate for and help our horse and feel confident in doing so. But these types of practices that we normalize, it's very about not having the horse owner be as sufficient as they probably should be. Um, so it, it, yeah, it's just about education and re-educating people and changing your views. Um, and like I said, there's no shame in making mistakes before you knew better, especially when you're following the advice and expertise of role models that have told you that they are knowledgeable and made you think that they are who you should believe and that they're a credible source to go to. It can be really hard to put that much faith in people and then find out years later that they weren't helping you or your horse in the way that you thought that they were. And it's devastating. Um, I talked about this before in a different podcast with like Milo's hooves. I didn't know enough about feet to really advocate it for him in the way that I wanted to. Um, and it was really hard for me to uh, continue having problems with his feet when I thought we were doing all the right things to help him and be on the right track initially. But really all we were doing with the shoeing was, uh, creating a band-aid fix and not actually addressing the pathology of his feet and changing the overall angles. But I was doing everything I could to advocate for him and try to find the right type of person to make the changes that I wanted to see. And I was being misled by people who were perceived as having more knowledge than me and perceived as being more educated on that topic and more able to help him than I was. Uh, and the same thing happened with my Arabian with like how I was training him. Like I rode in draw reins all the time. I used really harsh bits all the time. I was really harsh and punishing on him and I got frustrated with his behavior under saddle because he was very spooky and he would always bolt, but he was stabled way, way too much. So when I did eventually move him to a place where he was out 24-7, the difference in his behavior was one of the most eye-opening things to me and it required absolutely no education on my part other than just the sheer comparison of knowing how he had been for literal years on a daily basis for riding versus the immediate change as soon as he started going out. There was nothing that spoke more volumes to me than that. So I think that another part of this entire thing 
is for horse people to consider trying new things. You can think in your head that positive reinforcement won't work because I used to, um, but when you start applying it and seeing the difference that it makes, you'll start using it more and you'll realize the validity of it and it'll cause you to learn more and open your eyes more and kind of become more open-minded to new training practices instead of closed off to ones that we have been told again and again by people who have also never tried a different way that they don't work. Uh, it's up to us to kind of try new things and be willing to experiment and learn about new things and put ourselves in discomfort in order to learn and grow and become better people. Like you have to be in discomfort sometimes in order to better yourself as a horse owner and equestrian. Um, and that's a necessity. So here's to like, first of all, holding yourself more accountable, having a thirst for knowledge, but also not holding yourself so accountable that you blame yourself for beliefs that you had, that you were taught by people that you thought were more knowledgeable than yourself. And maybe they were, um, and things that you learned earlier on and kept with you due to not ever being taught a different way because all the people around you represented the same thing and were doing the same thing. It is very hard to learn in that environment when you're consistently having your beliefs reinforced by everyone around you. It's like an echo chamber. So don't beat yourself up for that growth. Don't beat yourself up for being stuck in a situation um, and not having an immediate means of leaving it instantly. Uh, Do what you can and be mindful of the fact that decisions and things that you did in a place of ignorance or that you did under the guidance of someone who's supposed to be more experienced than you, they're not reflective of who you are as a person and they're not reflective of your character or your love for horses. They're reflective of your role models and who you believed and what you were taught. It's not your fault if you were taught misinformation by people who were perceived as professionals and who were there to guide you and failed to do so properly. Not your fault. And also, if you ever feel targeted by what I say, like, just know it's not like a personal attack on you. Like, even people where I respond to training videos where they're handling horses in a harsh and abusive manner, I view it as this person has the potential to change. And if they do make the change, I'm as proud of them as I would be if they never made the mistake in the first place. It's about looking at things in the moment and going, I don't like what I'm seeing in this moment. What you're doing to this horse in this moment is avoidable and we shouldn't be glorifying abuse or cruelty to horses. But I view it as everyone is capable of changing because if I had been on TikTok when I was like 10, I would have like, and and the climate with the horse world was what it is now, I would have gotten torn apart and I would have had absolutely no idea why because I was not taught what I was doing wrong and I was taught that what was wrong was actually right. So I wouldn't have known. And it would have been hard for me to navigate that in a social setting like we have now on social media. So I'm really like I, I, I'm empathetic of people that are doing that because there is a lot of judgment on social media. And unfortunately, people take things to an extremely black and white, rigid manner where they don't necessarily allow for the same level of growth and change that they probably should. Um, or where they start holding like students and people who are under the guidance of other professionals as accountable as they would a professional, which isn't as fair. So it's really hard because like you're under so much more of a microscope now and there's a higher standard for horse care now because we are learning and growing and being better. And to some people who are more behind on learning about the science behind horse care and management, it might feel like people are being overly rigid in these stances if you're not at that point of your education yet. And it can feel like people are being like tree huggers or like um, over like 
crazy rabid animal activists when really it is that the horse world was so far behind for so long that we have a long way to go before we're actually at a point where we're all handling things ethically and in a forward thinking way. Uh, and that takes time. So it also just takes holding yourself accountable and having a thirst for knowledge and being aware of the fact that like there are different paths to a similar solution. So like providing people with solutions that are realistic in their current situation is the way to go. So for example, if I ever say something that applies to your horse and that makes you feel bad about your horse, instead of getting mad at me and getting defensive and trying to act like I am personally attacking you, why not ask me, hey, this is the situation my horse is in. How would you recommend bettering the situation with the resources that I have? Because I will happily give you some. Even if your horse is stable 24-7, I will give you ideas on how to make that better for them. And all you have to do is ask. I'm not expecting everyone to just uproot their entire life and everything that they know and just make the moves that may benefit their horse in the long run immediately, but I'm happy to provide you with resources that can help in the situation that you're in. Um, because I would have really appreciated people doing that for me, and I wish I learned sooner. I wish that I had access to better role models and instructors sooner, because it would have led me to being a better horse person than I am now, because I would have had more years of growth in order to learn about all that stuff, and change my practices, and undo all of the bad habits that I was taught. Undoing bad habits that you've been conditioned to do over the course of years, is a lot harder than just not learning how to do things wrong in the first place. So that's the other thing. Be gentle with yourself. If you've had it repeatedly conditioned into your head to smack your horse for biting, it can become like an innate response where you just do it habitually without thinking about it. And it's up to you to start catching yourself and learning different ways of handling that. But don't beat yourself up for having these innate ingrained habits that have been completely ground into your character and how you view and handle horses from the very beginning by people who were more educated or not educated is the wrong word, more experienced in the horse world than you and are supposed to serve as role models and mentors and guide and guides for you. They are the ones who taught you wrong. They are the ones who had the more experience to learn a better way and had the more resources in order to be lead themselves in the correct direction. And they failed you in that instance. Your conditioning that they gave to you over the course of months or years is your responsibility to fix in the long run, but it is not your fault that you were misled by someone who taught you things incorrectly or in an unnecessarily harsh way. And it can take time to fix those things. Like honestly, even now, it happens less and less and less because now I'm like, I don't know, like, like 10 years into kind of removing myself from the Arabian circuit and really starting to reform my uh, riding. So I've had more time to practice not sinking into mindsets that I used to freely do because I used to take my frustration out on horses a lot. Like I used to blame my horse and like view my Arabian's misbehavior as his fault and like it was intentional. And I would get mad at him and I would do things like seesawing on his mouth. And like my trainer would literally be there watching and telling me to do this. And I was just a kid and I didn't know that it was hurting him because she told me that it didn't hurt, that bits didn't hurt, that spurs didn't hurt, that they were just better in them because they liked them better, that they worked better. Like I didn't know the function behind things that I was doing or why it worked the way it did. And I was told repeatedly that like, oh, horses have really thick skin. They won't feel it when you kick them like that or hit them like that. It's like, it's like if you just tapped them and like so on and so forth. So I had that, those beliefs conditioned so far into me that I never viewed it as me causing my horse harm or distress. And 
having to unlearn that and having to learn how to handle my frustration in a more productive and ethical way took practice because I had a decade at least 10 to 12 years of being taught how to do things a certain way from a very young age where you're very impressionable and you latch onto these concepts fast and you just blindly trust and believe the adults around you. I had them conditioned into me from a very, very young age and it took practice to undo that and it took mindset and just catching myself and holding myself accountable and trying not to beat myself up when I did make mistakes. But it took a lot of practice and I don't think that enough people People talk about that when they have made changes and taken on more ethical horse care practices. I don't think enough people talk about the learning curve to undo all of the bad habits that you were taught and had conditioned into you. We talk about it with horses and how it can take horses a long time to learn new training concepts, especially when they've been taught things the incorrect way and how there is a learning curve and you need to be patient with them. We talk about that with horses often, but we don't talk about that with people. And now this isn't just to say, let yourself off the hook when you take out your frustration on the horse, hold yourself accountable, look at it and go, holy crap, I lost my patience on my horse. I was frustrated and angry with him and I took the course of action of punishing and scaring my horse. And that's not the way I want to do things in the future. I gave into a mindset that I was conditioned into doing by people I trusted and I gave into it because it was the easy and familiar route, but that's not what I want to do anymore. So now I need to catch myself earlier next time to avoid it escalating to that level. And that's what you need to do. It's not about beating yourself up or trying to have mistake-free learning because like horses, we can be taught how to do things completely wrong and then we can think we're doing the right answer and repeatedly offer that answer. And when you're suddenly told that that that's the wrong answer, it can be stressful, it can be frustrating, and it's really difficult to relearn how to do things the right way. So be gentle with yourself because honestly, this is the type of transition that everyone who is moving towards more modernized care and training practices has to go through. And some people may be better at it than others. Some people may have an easier time, especially depending on the length and time you spent doing things wrong and your age that you were in when you were first becoming indoctrinated in doing those things. It can take time. Hold yourself accountable, but don't beat yourself up because everyone is growing and changing and it can be really difficult to catch up after you've had so many years of doing things wrong and thinking about things a completely opposite way to what is actually the reality of things. So it takes time. And honestly, for me, I I, I also noticed with my mom too, like my mom grew up in the Arab circuit as well. And she, she learned how to do things in a very similar way. And she also grew up in a city where her horse was stabled all the time. And literally no one ever touched on the fact that stabling horses 24-7 was a welfare issue. And when you're around everyone else who's doing the same thing and their horses are engaging in similar behaviors to yours, even if all those behaviors are stress behaviors, it's normalized to you. You have no idea. And we're also talking about times where the internet wasn't what it was today. Kids growing up today that are in situations with trainers that are being taught wrong things, they're more likely to uncover the correct information because of the internet access that they have than anyone was before we had that access. Now with the amount of equestrians that can gather together in groups or on Instagram, Facebook groups, uh, chats and whatnot, you have way more access to learning resources that can help pull you out of a mindset that is unhealthy. Whereas before we were very much at the mercy of just learning from books or people around us. Uh, So for my mom too, it's been a learning curve and we've both kind of been learning together because she was involved in it for way longer than me. Um, And like, 
she she had discomfort about how horses were handled in the Arabian circuit as well. It's not like she just blindly followed all of it, but when she did voice concerns, she was very quickly shot down by trainers and people who were professionals and perceived as more knowledgeable. So she didn't really have comfort in advocating for herself because she was humiliated and made to feel like she didn't know what she was talking about and she had no means of fact-checking to the degree that she has now. So she's been learning and changing how she views training and care of the animals. And it's something that we've had to do with like our horses and our dogs. And it's a learning curve. So be gentle with yourself while still holding yourself accountable and being open to new information. And if you find yourself getting triggered or really closed off to info that's being offered, try to explore the why behind that and try to figure out what is actually motivating that response in you because that'll help with a lot of things. And same thing with like your frustration during rides because honestly, when people lose their patience with their horse, usually what motivates that frustration is the fact that they don't know how to address the problem. It's the fact that they don't know what to do. So instead of finding a different means of doing it and trying to think of like, like, how can I do this better and help the horse understand more? They then lose their patience on the horse because they don't know what direction to head into after. So it takes practice and we need to all kind of help support each other by sharing information and trying to modernize the horse world because honestly like it's our responsibility to make the changes that we'd like to see and if we don't do that, the horse world is going to go under and have issues because we're highlighting now on social media especially how few people are motivated to change and how many people will are willing to cling to ignorance and publicly defend harsh and abusive training methods of horses um, because they're brainwashed. Like, I'm not saying that it's because they're just mean and they don't like horses, but they've been indoctrinated into normalizing harsh and unfair care and training practices to an extent that the average human being witnessing horse care and training will not do. So when the when a normal, non-indoctrinated person sees it, they look at it for what it is and they're appalled by people defending it, but they don't understand the level of misinformation that's behind those reactions and they have no context of that. So it's up to us to kind of try to give context to those people. And it's also up to us to try to educate and share things so that people can learn and they can come across information organically that may help them. Um, and that's why I like doing the info posts and the podcasts and stuff, because people can choose to listen to them. And if they don't like it, they don't have to follow me. They don't have to look at my stuff. They don't have to listen to it. They can just move on and take what they like and, and leave what they don't. And that's up to them. Like my opinions are my own. A lot of them are rooted in science and backed by like scientific research and fact, but they're, my, my viewpoints and my opinions on things are completely centered around how I've grown up and like what I've witnessed and also like my job as like a horse person as well. So it's, it's, it's based on my life. I've not lived your life. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know how trainers indoctrinated you into that you're into certain views or like how you were treated. Like I was bullied when I didn't do things that my trainers didn't want me to do. And I was made to feel small and embarrassed, which is why I just started to do things without question. And undoing that and relearning how to have a voice for myself took practice. And it's taken lots of practice. And even within the last two years, honestly, I've learned how to be more outspoken and set boundaries and advocate for myself more because I've been put in really uncomfortable situations where it was kind of like do or die, like where I have to speak out and assert myself or I'm just going to continue to get mistreated by people. Uh, so it's been a learning curve where I've had to learn how to do that. And it's not easy and it takes practice and it's okay if you're not there yet. It's okay. Uh, so anyways, that's today's podcast. It actually ended up being longer than I thought. So now I've freaking spent four hours trying to record this podcast. Oh my God. Um, anyways, so yeah, that, that's, that's it for today's podcast.
Uh, and basically, yeah, that, that's all I'm saying. Don't feel judged by me because honestly, like, I can relate to how difficult it can be to get out of, like, toxic mindsets and mentalities because that's what I was doing for so long. And I am thankful for social media and the role it played in helping me out of those situations because having access to people who viewed things differently and the information they shared is largely what helped me, um, reimagine who I was as a horse person and helps me onto that right path. Even if some people went about it in a way that was hurtful and difficult for me to take in, it was really helpful. So now I'm trying to use my platform in a way to help other people like that before they have gone into it for as many years as I did before I made those changes. But yeah, anyways, thank you for listening to this podcast. I always appreciate it. Uh, for anyone who is interested in supporting the podcast, you can support me by joining my Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and you get access to behind the scene things, uh, tutorials and training help and asking questions, live Q&As. Some of the different tiers cover more of the training part of things. So you might want to choose more one of the higher tiers if you want more tutorials or if you want training consults and access to like video critiques and whatnot. But Patreon's super helpful. It helps fund, um, the podcast and all that stuff. And just like any equipment I might need for it. And it'll also help with like supporting Milo with his need for the MRI. If you haven't heard that at the end of my last podcast, I talked about that. And I also posted a video on YouTube about it. And I also posted a post on Instagram as well as my milestone equestrian Facebook page. If you want to check it out. But yeah, uh, so it'll go towards helping him and you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month, patreon.com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S. I also have a PayPal tip jar for anyone who is interested. It's just paypal.me slash milestone equestrian. Um, and the tip jar, again, it just goes towards podcast stuff or honestly, right now, the vast majority of it's going to go towards Milo's care for his MRI uh, and the previous vet bills with Harlow and also the diagnostics that we just did with Milo. So we're already like four to $5,000 in the hole um, after both of those things. Plus Plus the additional 3000 for the MRI. So it's quite the undertaking. Um, most of my money is in inventory for product right now because I don't have investors. I buy all of my own inventory and I have to put large amounts of my own money that I have to earn myself and then put into product. Um, so also, if you're interested in buying any of that, you can check out my merch store at shopmilestoneequestrian.com. If you use code MILO at checkout, you can get 10% off. All of my products on the amoreequestrian.ca website are also on sale with code MILO, 10% off. If you go to the milestone page on amoreequestrian.ca, that's A-M-O-R-E, equestrian.ca, you can check that out. Uh, supporting those products and helping me move inventory is super helpful because, like I said, a lot of my money is in inventory. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry like the bridles and stuff sell out really fast because of that as well because I don't have the revenue to bring in as big of inventory quantities as what large companies can it's not like a marketing ploy or anything it's the fact that like I am a singular human being who is putting thousands of my own money into products but doesn't want to put so much in that I absolutely sewer myself if it doesn't sell uh, so it's very scary because yeah like it, it's money that you put out and you're hoping you see it back at some point um, so yeah uh, shopping my stuff sharing any of the stuff like my YouTube videos or any of my uh, merch stores or the Patreon uh, to help people see it is really helpful. Uh, sharing these podcasts, supporting these podcasts, 
all that stuff kind of helps support me in helping my horses and their care and also just helping me with the costs and the time associated with putting like four hours into podcasts like this when things don't go well and also doing the tutorials and the infographics and all that stuff that I do because it is time consuming and honestly like throughout my work day uh including training horses like I'm working almost the entire day like it's very hard for me to turn off work mode um even when it's technically in my time off I'm doing stuff on my phone and trying to figure out ways to allocate resources and revenue to do stuff like helping Milo and also like product inventory and all that stuff so it's 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 difficult and it like any of the help that people provide by like sharing supporting um purchasing products and stuff it's so appreciated like I appreciate everyone who had kind words to say about Milo who shared their in their similar situations they've had with their horses with good outcomes and also just like said their love and support and also anyone who donated or purchased products I really appreciate it it's super helpful and it's really humbling to see how willing the community is to come together to help Milo and how many people love him it's really nice to see and I so appreciate it so thank you again for everyone who has done that and yeah if you're interested, all of those links will be down in the description of this podcast, or you can just type them into your search engine. Also, for anyone who's interested, you can use my code SDEQUUS, S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, for a discount on Mad Barn supplements. Mad Barn has free shipping over $40 in the U.S. and Canada, so that's super convenient. They'll deliver it right to your door. I never have to go out and get supplements anymore. My horses are doing super well on it. I really like their stuff. You can also get a free diet analysis from them up on their website if you're interested. Uh, so I have recommend checking that out especially if you're looking for ways to like improve your horse's hoof health or overall health they have a lot of great products and they'll help you uh, set up the right plan for your horse's diet with what they're eating right now uh yeah so thank you for listening i'll keep everyone posted on milo he's going in for his mri on june 6th so for now it's a waiting game until he does that we don't really know what we're dealing with and we don't really know if we're going to proceed to do the arthroscopy because if he has something that's acute or needs treatment it doesn't make sense to put him under general anesthetic for an invasive procedure like an arthroscopy so it will be um it, it it's kind of up in the air right now but yeah i'm trying to move product and get all the stuff in order so that i could pay for that MRI and hopefully continue to restock my products because uh yeah it'll be hard to do when most of my revenue is going to be going into this and obviously Milo takes priority so for anyone who's interested in buying products especially if you want to see like a restock of stuff I need to move more products before I can reasonably restock huge amounts I do have a restock of the bridles coming on its way so that will be here soon things have been slowed down because it was Ramadan all last month so a lot of my bridal makers were celebrating their holiday uh, so things were slow because of that but they deserve to be able to celebrate and do their thing even if it's not something a lot of people celebrate out this way uh, it's still something we need to consider and be considerate of because uh, their holidays are just as relevant as any of the ones that we commonly celebrate and have stats for out this way in Western culture. Uh, so that kind of delayed things, but things will be up and running soon again, and we will be having that restock come in soon. I'll announce the date for the official release of like all the restocked bridles so that people can be ready to order and know when it's coming out. But, um, yeah, just know that they're on their way and, 
uh, things were just delayed because of the holidays and whatnot. So it's been kind of a little slow going, which is also kind of why I'm like, oh my God, I need to move inventory because like I have money in inventory that is not here yet, which means I can't get my money back out of it by starting to sell it yet. Uh, so yeah, check out the products, check out the website. If you're interested in the Patreon, there's lots of tutorials on there and you can get access to free training help. I also do online consults that you can check out on my website, milestoneequestrian.ca if that is something that you are interested in. Um, that would, that anything helps. Sharing the stuff helps. Sharing all my links helps. And just like interacting, interacting with my posts helps because it just helps them get seen more. Um, all that stuff helps. And I really appreciate all the help and support people have already given. It means a ton to me. And uh, you don't know how much I appreciate it. It's, it. it's very humbling and I'm thankful to have such like a great following of amazing people and also know that Milo is so loved and cared for and valued. So here's to hoping that the MRI goes well. I'm going to just proceed to have a panic attack until we do know what's going on because I just want to know. I can invent so many worst case scenarios in my head. So until I actually have the answer, it's really hard to just be like, okay, I feel good about this. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where we're at now. Um, check those things out if you're interested and yeah, share my videos, share the posts on Instagram, and just, you can show your support through commenting and sharing as well, because that just helps with, like, revenue and whatnot. Also, I have an ebook that I have released. I'll leave the link to order that down in the description as well, if anyone is interested. Um, it's, it's about, like, yeah, it's about my story with how I altered my training methods and kind of, like, a bit of, like, where I came from and how Milo changed that and just different views on training and how to help horses and a rundown on, like, different types of methodologies and how to understand behavioral science basics and how horses think. Uh, so you can check that out. It is linked down below in the description. The book is called Horse Harmony. Uh, I have a marketing firm that is doing all the marketing and whatnot for me. So if you've seen it anywhere, it is not a scam. It is me. I've had a few people ask because uh, I don't really know where they're posting because I'm way too busy to uh, be involved in that. So they're handling it. Um, yeah, so you can check that out. Thank you again. And thank you for listening. And I hope everyone has a splendid day and that everyone's having better luck with their horses than I've been in terms of vet bills, or if not, that they're doing well and you're on the right track for treating them. Or if you're in the same boat as me and things are up in the air, I hope you can get the answers you need. Okay, cheers, everyone. Don't forget to check out those links down in the description and share the podcast if you like it. Uh, also, if you're interested in the Patreon, I accept... Uh, suggestions for podcast episodes and whatnot from patrons and we also do live q a's and all sorts of fun things so you can check that out at patreon.com slash sdequ okay thank you everyone have a great day thanks for listening to the making milestones podcast